Section 19 of Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kattekliek. Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 2. Section 19. Selected Works by Thomas Aquinas Thomas Aquinas, 1226-1274 to 1274, by Edwin A. Pace Thomas Aquinas, philosopher and theologian, was born in 1226 at or near Aquino, in southern Italy. He received his early training from the Benedictines of Monte Cassino. Tradition says he was a taciturn and seemingly dull boy, derisively nicknamed by his fellows the dumb ox but admired by his teachers he subsequently entered the university of naples while studying there he joined the dominican order and was sent later on to cologne where he became a pupil of albertus magnus in twelve fifty one he went to paris took his degrees in theology and began his career as a teacher in the university his academic work there was continued with slight interruptions till 1261. The eleven years which followed were spent partly in Rome, where Thomas enjoyed the esteem of Urban IV and Clement IV, and partly in the cities of northern Italy, which he visited in the interest of his order. During this period he produced the greatest of his works, and won such repute as a theologian that the leading universities made every effort to secure him as a teacher. He was appointed to a professorship at Naples, where he remained from 1272 until the early part of 1274. Summoned by Gregory X to take part in the Council of Lyon, he set out on his journey northward, but was compelled by illness to stop at Fossa Nuova. Here he died, March 7, 1274. He was canonized in 1323 and was proclaimed the doctor of the church by Pius V in 1567. These honors were merited by a remarkable combination of ability and virtue. To an absolute purity of life, St. Thomas added an earnest love of truth and of labor. Calm in the midst of discussion, he was equally proof against the danger of brilliant success. As the friend of popes and princes, he might have attained the highest dignities, but these he steadfastly declined, devoting himself, so far as his duty permitted, to scientific pursuits. Judged by his writings, he was intense yet thoroughly objective, firm in his own position, but dispassionate in treating the opinion of others. Conclusions reached by daring speculation and faultless logic are stated simply, impersonally, keen replies are given without bitterness and the boldest efforts of reason are united with the submissiveness of faith his works fill twenty-five large quarto volumes of the parma edition this is so far the most complete collection though various portions have been edited from time to time with the commentaries of learned theologians like cayetan and silvius partial translations have also been made into several modern languages but as yet there is no complete english edition of st thomas turning to the latin text the student cannot but notice the contrast between the easy diction of modern philosophical writers 
and the rugged conciseness of the medieval schoolmen. On the other hand, disappointment awaits those who quit the pages of Cicero for the less elegant Latinity of the Middle Ages. What can be said in favor of scholastic style is that it expresses clearly and tersely the subtle shades of thought which had developed through thirteen centuries, and which often necessitated the sacrifice of classic form. With the schoolmen, as with modern writers on scientific subjects, precision was the first requisite, and terminology was of more consequence than literary beauty. Similar standards must be kept in view when we pass judgment upon the technique of St. Thomas. In his presentation we find neither the eloquence nor the rhetoric of the fathers. He quotes them continually, and in some of his works adopts their division into books and chapters, but his exposition is more compact, consisting at times of clear-cut arguments in series without an attempt at transition, at other times of sustained reasoning processes in which no phrase is superfluous and no word ambiguous. Elsewhere he uses the more rigid mould which was peculiar to the scholastic period and has been fashioned chiefly by Alexander Hales. Each subject is divided into so many questions, and each question into so many articles. The article begins with a statement of objections, then discusses various opinions, establishes the author's position, and closes with a solution of the difficulties which that position may encounter. This method had its advantages. It facilitated analysis, and obliged the writer to examine every aspect of a problem. It secured breadth of view and thoroughness of treatment. It was especially a transparent medium for reason, unbiased by either sentiment or verbiage. If such qualities of style and presentation were encouraged by the environment in which Aquinas pursued his earlier studies, they were also helpful in the task which he chose as his life work. This was the construction of a system in which all the elements of knowledge should be harmoniously united. An undertaking so vast necessitated a long preparation, the study of all available sources, and the elucidation of many detailed problems. Hence, a considerable portion of St. Thomas's works is taken up with the explanation of Peter Lombard's Sententiae, with commentaries on Aristotle, with expositions of sacred scripture, collections from the fathers, and various opuscula or studies on special subjects. Under the title Questiones Disputate, numerous problems in philosophy and theology are discussed at length, but the synthetic power of Aquinas is shown chiefly in the Contra Gentes and the Summa Theologica, the former being a defense of Christian belief with special reference to Arabian philosophy, and the latter a masterly compendium of rational and revealed truth. The conception of the Summa was not altogether original. From the earliest days of the Church, men of genius had insisted on the reasonableness of Christian belief by showing that, though supernatural in its origin, it did not conflict with either the facts or the laws of human knowledge. And as these had found their highest expression in Greek philosophy, it was natural that this philosophy should serve as a basis for elucidation of revealed truth. The early fathers turned to Plato, not only because his teaching was so spiritual, but also because it could be so readily used as a framework for those theological concepts which Christianity had brought into the world. 
thus adopted by men who were recognized authorities in the church especially men like augustine and the areopagite platonism endured for centuries as the rational element in dogmatic exposition scholasticism inaugurated a new era patristic erudition had gathered a wealth of theological knowledge which the schoolmen fully appreciated but the same truths were to receive another setting and be treated by different methods speculation changed its direction aristotle taking the place of his master the peripatetic system found able exponents in the earlier scholastics but aquinas surpassed them alike in the mastery of the philosopher's principles and in his application of these principles to christian doctrine his commentaries on aristotle adhere strictly to the text dissecting its meaning and throwing into relief the orderly sequence of ideas in his other works he develops the germs of thought which he had gathered from the staggerite and makes them the groundwork for his philosophical and theological speculations with the subtlety of a metaphysician st thomas combined a vast erudition quotations from the fathers appear on nearly every page of his writings serving either as a keynote to the discussion which follows or as an occasion for solving objections towards st augustine he shows the deepest reverence though their methods differ so widely and his brief but lucid comments throw light on difficult sayings of the great doctor his familiarity with patristic theology is shown particularly in the catena aurea where he links with passages from the sacred text numerous extracts from the older commentators his respect for these interpretations did not prevent him from making a thorough search of scripture itself with characteristic clearness and depth he interpreted various books of the bible insisting chiefly on the doctrinal meaning the best of his work in this line was devoted to the pauline epistles and to the book of job but his mastery of each text is no less evident where he takes the authority of scripture as the starting point in theological argument or makes it the crowning evidence at the close of a philosophical demonstration the materials gathered from philosophy tradition and scripture were the fruit of analysis the final synthesis had yet to be accomplished this was the scope of the summa theologica a work which though it was not completed is the greatest production of thomas aquinas in the prologue he says since the teacher of catholic truth should instruct not only those who are advanced but also those who are beginning it is our purpose in this work to treat subjects pertaining to the christian religion in a manner adapted to the instruction of beginners for we have considered that young students encounter various obstacles in the writings of different authors partly because of the multiplication of useless questions articles and arguments partly because the essentials of knowledge are dealt with not in scientific order but according as the explanation of books required or an occasion for disputing offered partly because the frequent repetition of the same things begets weariness and confusion in the hearer's mind endeavouring therefore to avoid these defects and others of a like nature we shall try with confidence in the divine assistance to treat of sacred science briefly and clearly so far as the subject matter will allow the work intended for novices in theology 
and so unpretentiously opened, is then proportioned out in these words. Whereas the chief aim of this science is to impart a knowledge of God, not only as existing in himself, but also as the origin and end of all things, and especially of rational creatures, we therefore shall treat first of God, second of the rational creature's tendency toward God, third of Christ, who as man is the way whereby we approach unto God. Concerning God we shall consider, one, those things which pertain to the divine essence, two, those which regard the distinction of persons, three, those which concern the origin of creatures from him. As to the divine essence we shall inquire, one, whether God exists, two, what is, or rather what is not, the manner of his existence, three, how he acts through his knowledge, will, and power. Under the first heading we shall ask whether God's existence is self-evident, whether it can be demonstrated, and whether God does exist. Similar subdivisions precede each question as it comes up for discussion, so that the student is enabled to take a comprehensive view and perceive the bearing of one problem on another as well as its place in the wide domain of theology. As a consequence, those who are familiar with the Summa find in it an object lesson of breadth, proportion, and orderly thinking. Its chief merit, however, lies in the fact that it is the most complete and systematic exhibition of the harmony between reason and faith. In it, more than in any other of his works, is displayed the mind of its author. It determines his place in the history of thought, and closes what may be called the second period in the development of Christian theology. Scholasticism, the high point of intellectual activity in the Church, reached its culmination in Thomas Aquinas. His works have been a rich source of information for Catholic theologians, and his opinions have always commanded respect. The polemics of the sixteenth century brought about a change in theological methods, the positive and critical elements becoming more prominent. Modern rationalism, however, has intensified the discussion of those fundamental problems which St. Thomas handled so thoroughly. As his writings furnish both a forcible statement of the Catholic position and satisfactory replies to many current objections, the Thomistic system has recently been restored. The neo-scholastic movement was initiated by Leo XIII in his encyclical Eterni Patris, dated August 4, 1879, and its rapid growth has made Aquinas the model for Catholic thought in the 19th century, as he certainly was in the 13th. The subjoined extracts show his views on some questions of actual importance, with regard not alone to medieval controversies, but to the problems of the universe, which will press on the minds of men 2,500 years in the future, as they did 2,500 years in the past. On the Value of Our Concepts of the Deity Part 1 from the Summa Theologica It is obvious that terms implying negation or intrinsic relation in no way signify the divine substance, but simply the removal of some attribute from him, or his relation with other beings, or rather the relation of other beings with him. As to appellations that are absolute and positive, such as good, wise, and the like, various opinions have been entertained 
it was held by some that these terms though used affirmatively were in reality devised for the purpose of elimination and not with the intent of positive attribution hence they claimed when we say that god is a living being we mean that god's existence is not that of inanimate things and so on for other predicates this was the position of rabbi moses according to another view these terms are employed to denote a relation between god and creatures so that for instance when we say god is good we mean god is the cause of goodness in all things both interpretations however are open to a threefold objection for in the first place neither can offer any explanation of the fact that certain terms are applied to the deity in preference to others as he is the source of all good so he is the cause of all things corporeal consequently if by affirming that god is good we merely imply that he is the cause of goodness we might with equal reason assert that he is a corporeal being again the interference from these positions would be that all terms applied to god have only a secondary import such for instance as we give to the word healthy as applied to medicine whereby we signify that it is productive of health in the organism while the organism itself is said properly and primarily to be healthy in the third place these interpretations distort the meaning of those who employ such terms in regard to the deity for when they declare that he is the living god they certainly mean something else than that he is the cause of our life or that he is different from inanimate bodies we are obliged therefore to take another view and to affirm that such terms denote the substantial nature of god but that at the same time their representative force is deficient they express the knowledge which our intellect has of god and since this knowledge is gotten from created things we know him according to the measure in which creatures represent him now god absolutely and in all respects perfect possesses every perfection that is found in his creatures each created thing therefore inasmuch as it has some perfection resembles and manifests the deity not as a being of the same species or genus with itself but as a supereminent source from which are derived its effects they represent him in a word just as the energy of the terrestrial elements represents the energy of the sun our manner of speech therefore denotes the substance of god yet denotes it imperfectly because creatures are imperfect manifestations of him when we say that god is good we do not mean that he is the cause of goodness or that he is not evil our meaning is this what we call goodness in creatures pre-exists in god in a far higher way whence it follows not that god is good because he is the source of good but rather because he is good he imparts goodness to all things else as saint augustine says inasmuch as he is good we are how can the absolute be a cause from the questiones disputate the relations which are spoken of an existing between god and creatures are not really in him a real relation is that which exists between two things it is mutual or bilateral then only when its basis in both correlates is the same such is the case in all quantitative relations quantity being essentially the same in all quanta 
gives rise to relations which are real in both terms in the part for instance and in the whole in the unit of measurement and in that which is measured but where a relation originates in causation as between that which is active and that which is passive it does not always concern both terms true that which is acted upon or set in motion or produced must be related to the source of these modifications since every effect is dependent upon its cause and it is equally true that such causes or agencies are in some cases related to their effects namely when the production of those effects redounds in some ways to the well-being of the cause itself this is evidently what happens when like begets like and thereby perpetuates so far as may be its own species there are cases nevertheless in which a thing without being related has other things related to it the cognizing subject is related to that which is the object of cognition to a thing which is outside the mind but the thing itself is in no way affected by this cognition since the mental process is confined to the mind and therefore does not bring about any change in the object hence the relation established by the act of knowing cannot be in that which is known the same holds good of sensation for though the physical object sets up changes in the sense organ and is related to it as other physical agencies are related to the things on which they act still the sensation implies over and above the organic change a subjective activity of which the external activity is altogether devoid likewise we say that a man is at the right of a pillar because with his power of locomotion he can take his stand at the right or the left before or behind above or below but obviously these relations vary them as we will imply nothing in the stationary pillar though they are real in the man who holds or changes his position once more a coin has nothing to do with the action that gives it its value since this action is a human convention and the man is quite apart from the process which produces his image between a man and his portrait there is a relation but this is real in the portrait only between the coin and its current value there is a relation but this is not real in the coin now for the application god's actions is not to be understood as going out from him and terminating in that which he creates his action is himself consequently altogether apart from the genus of created things whereby the creature is related to him and again he gains nothing by creating or as avicenna puts it his creative action is in the highest degree generous it is also manifest that his action involves no modification of his being without changing he causes the changeable consequently though creatures are related to him as effects to their cause he is not really related to them on the production of living things from the questiones disputate according to augustine the passage let the earth bring forth the green herb means not that plants were then actually produced in their proper nature but that a germinative power was given the earth to produce plants by the work of propagation so that the earth is then said to have brought forth the green herb and the fruit yielding tree 
inasmuch as it received the power of producing them. This position is strengthened by the authority of Scripture. Genesis 2, verse 4. These are the generations of the heaven and the earth, when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the heaven and the earth, and every plant in the field before it sprang up in the earth, and every herb in the ground before it grew. From this text we infer, first, that all the works of the six days were created in the day that God made heaven and earth, and every plant of the field, and consequently that all plants which are said to have been created on the third day were produced at the same time that God created heaven and earth. The second inference is that plants were then produced not actually, but only according to causal virtues, in that the power to produce them was given to the earth. And this is meant when it is said that he produced every plant of the field, before it actually arose upon the earth, by his dispositive action, and every herb of the earth, before it actually grew. Hence, before they came forth in reality, they were made coarsely in the earth. This view, moreover, is supported by reason. For in those first days God made the creature either in its course, or in its origin, or in its actuality, by the works from which he afterward rested. He nevertheless works even till now in the administration of things created by the work of propagation. To this latter process belongs the actual production of plants from the earth, because all that is needed to bring them forth is the energy of the heavenly bodies as their father, so to say, and the power of the earth in place of a mother. Plants, therefore, were produced on the third day, not actually, but causally. After the six days, however, they were actually brought forth, according to their proper species and in their proper nature, by the work of administration. End of section 19